how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode is brought to you by IronJohnGear.com. In between your creative pursuits, make sure to check out Iron John Gear for top apparel, footwear, fitness items, outdoor supplies, sports gear, and much more. Visit the website for top deals on things like lanterns, backpacks, tents, snow clothing, bomber hats, sunglasses, fishing gear, and more. Visit ironjohngear.com today and save money on your next adventure. In addition to Iron John Gear, make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. In the film Guardians of the Tomb, an innocent discovery of a mummified emperor from 200 BC China unearths a 2,000-year-old nightmare. The film stars Kelsey Grammer from Frasier, Lee Bingbing from Transformers, and Kellen Lutz from the Twilight series. In this interview, director Kimball Rendell talks about how he started as an apprentice and musician in Australia and made his way from music videos to commercials to film. He also describes how one song can change a movie, the ins and outs of the global marketplace, and how he created a punk rock version of Itsy Bitsy Spider for the film. I got, in, I got into it, um, uh, I sort of had a, cl a cliche of, um, when, I was, well, my, when I was 12, my, I had a guitar, my mom took me to guitar lessons. My two passions are music and film. Mum, um, yeah, took me to guitar lessons, and my dad gave me a, ca a Super 8 camera. That's the you know, sort of cliche part. A lot of filmmakers start, seem to start at 12 with a Super 8 camera, or well, in my day, anyway. And, um, and you know, my dad gave me that. So I started running around and filming, you know, the dog in slow motion, then I started doing stories, and and then, um, it was, you know, the Australian government were very um, supportive. You can get um, experimental film funding from them. So then as I started to get more... You know, experimental you know, and do that. And so I made films, and you know, then that got into the Biennale, represented Australia in that. And so I started to get, um, you know, oh, I'm going to do a short film that went to Telluride. And um, and in the meantime, I'd studied, um, you know, I was always studying films, I was making little films, and then, you know, they were going into festivals and such. And then I was also studying in the university, I did a film, and then. And then I, be, I wanted to become a film editor, so I, uh, through nepotism, my uncle introduced me. After writing thousands of letters to you know, places, he said, oh, I know the guy that runs the editing at the ABC, which is a big TV place here. 
But it's the only place you could really... You know, a lot of our filmmakers, like John Seale, the cinematographer, a lot of lot of great filmmakers came through the ABC. And uh, so I was an assistant editor there, you know, where they're wearing the white gloves. And just, I thought that was a great place to be to, you know, I always wanted to become a director. Um, and I just thought that was a great place to be. I loved editing and to see how directors work because you were, you know, always working on different things. I was, you know, as an apprentice assistant, like in, when I started, it was like, you know, very much the apprentice system. And... Um, and then moved through then to digital and editing. Then I was at the same time working as a musician, formed a couple of bands, and um, and then that you know so I was editing. We'd do the music, some music videos. Or I'd shoot it and then we cut the music videos. And then somebody said, "Well, can you do one for us?" So I started cutting for other directors. And then I thought, uh, "I think I can do this myself now." So so then I just concentrated on directing and. But, you know, in those days, the music video industry just became this, well, it became like an industry. You know, when Russell Mulcahy and all those guys were doing them, and well, you know, that was a big business. Oh, the business anyway, so we all did that, and then that led to commercials. I did a lot of those, and that suddenly, um, uh, you know, that was money, and you could really play around with stuff, and then that led into into films. You know, I, was, I had my own production company, and I was, so it was being very successful commercials. I thought, well, features is what I really want to do, and so I stopped the company and started in you know features, and that that was like okay, there, that that was the end of the big house. I tell you, big house got sold, and then I found my true love, you know, true love in um, yeah, you know, directly, and then I was lucky to get second unit work on those you know, big Hollywood movies. That was amazing. So, so my whole life I've sort of lived from one job to another, freelance and still going. So you were in some rock bands in Australia. I've spoken to some other musicians who kind of went into writing or directing and they found like a certain rhythm in their work. Do you see beats or rhythm or anything uh, musical when you're either writing or directing a film? Totally. I think that's a great question. And I think about it a lot. I just sort of talk to talk about it because if I'm working with a, you know, a young editor who's, um, you know, just working on an avid, it's all digital and just hitting buttons. You know, I bore them with the story of how, we, you know, when we started, you know, when I started as an assistant, it was a pixie and it was film and it was a Steenbeck and it was, you know, so the rhythm of the cutting, you had, if you made an edit, you had to decide if on a frame. It was, and with the pixie, it was a rhythm. So you had to run it, you know, it's a hand, you run it by hand. So 24 frames and it's the rhythm of that. And then you run it back, forth, back, forth, and then you find the, you know, the actual frame you want to cut on. And, and, and then if you added music into that, then the rhythms of music, I've always found that you could play any any track um, with any piece, any, any image, and that at some point they'd always sync up. It didn't matter what it was, you know. So I, I still do it. It's, at some point they, they connect. And it is the math, it's the mathematics and the rhythms of music. So, yeah, definitely. And I play music on the set, you know. You know I, I try and you know, ju- judge the mood of you know, okay, everyone's been out to lunch and then come back in and let's get riders right, right of the storm going, you know, with the rain falling and build it up. And then, you know, if we've got a lot of extras on the set, you know, we play stuff that they can all, you know, in between takes, they sing along. And it's just, I, I use it all the time. And, you know, I'm still playing. And actually we did some two tracks in the film. Jason, my you know, music partner and I, we did um, Bitsy Bitsy Spider, which is at the end of the film, a punk, punk version. And, Punch drunk. So, and then I work with the composer, of course. And then Jason and I, we, you know, we're editing the the tracks as well. We do a lot of music editing. So, 
So, yeah, definitely. It's entwined. And I think it's interesting, um, as you say, with the, with, the, with the rhythm of it, how it... I mean, the fast cutting, once the once digital editing came out, the whole style of editing changed. You know, that's why the, if you look at a Transformers or, you know, those films or Michael Bay-style films, then... You know, it's 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 a it's a style that's come because, and I think it's because it's the way of the uh, driven by the machines they're working on. It's easy to do, like you know, hit a button. Is there anything else you do when you're creating a story? Like I know some directors and writers will have like maybe a collage of pictures they refer to, or even a soundtrack they kind of make just in the writing process. Do anything like that with your work? I should just clarify what I just said. I when I say it's easy to do, it's not easy to edit a film, but it's sort of easy to get into the, you know, change the rhythm of it by hitting a button. It's certainly not easy editing a film. Um, is there a soundtrack that I think about? Do you kind of create your own soundtrack as you're writing or thinking about a film? Again, yeah, I play music, and um, I do, I, yeah, I mean, because I'm, I'm listening to... Yeah, from writing and working, I'm got, always got you know music going and listening to it, and also, well, I did think the itty bitty spider thing. I thought that you know that had to go in there. That wasn't that's not a major part of it. It's like a, in, I like to do it over the end titles, but you know I started to think about the different styles of music that that can be in it. But certainly, I mean, it's interesting how the music can change. Um, I know with Moonstruck, um, Norman Jewison told me the story about um, when he did Moonstruck. He loved classical music, and um, you know, and uh, he had, had, had that in the film, and uh, and they did a test on the film, and it, and it uh, didn't perform very well, tested really badly. And he said, oh, he said, oh, my career's over." And uh, and then he went. He went out to lunch with a mate of his. I think it was in New York, and the mate from the Bronx. It had nothing to do with film. And the, and his mate said, um, "Hey, you know, you got Moonstruck. What do you put in that? When the moon hits your eye, like a big pizza pie song." And he said, "No, I'm not going to put that in. I hate that song. I hate it. I only love classical music. That's that's rubbish." Anyway, so the editor laid that track in, and and then Norman said he looked at it. He thought, "Wow, I just transformed the, the film. Now, nothing else had changed. Just that one track." And then they rescreened it. To the you know, test audience, which is always dreadful, but um, and and they loved it. It was that's the only thing they changed that one song. So it's 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 it's, it's interesting how you know the the it's undervalued music. Everyone like leaves it to the end. Generally, they don't leave any money. They you know unless I mean notably with Australian films and American films, big American films, of course, with a big budget, you've got you know amazing people, but. Here they tend to leave it as a, the poor cousin to, at the end. Oh, yeah, that's right. We need some music. Well, who's going to do it for like $10? Um, so I read with this new film, in terms of thinking about it as like a, as a marketing or an appeal, you, you were th- considering the global audience. Can you describe what that means and, and how you thought about that while writing the new film? It's um, the last film we did, which was the Shark, a shark, a shark film, um, was you know which was very went to number one in China, so that did really well over there. So the Chinese wanted another you know another of, in this sort of style, and it was aimed at so the Chinese um, uh, you know the Chinese um, uh, box office is now the I think pretty close to the biggest in the world, probably a little bit behind Hollywood, but but the uh, theatre going audience, so the cinema going audience is is def- definitely the biggest and will be soon. So it's gigantic. And 
So that is the box office that we we're aiming at. It was the Chinese, and the story was written for the Chinese audience. It was targeted at Chinese teenage girls specifically, because that is um, that is that was that's the biggest audience over there, and probably the biggest audience in the world. So they told me, I can't believe it, but it's true. Um, so yeah, it was really aimed at, at a specific audience within the specific country, but internationally, you know, it's a Western film as well. So obviously. You know, it's, you know, so we did a, it's in 3D. That's what it's meant to be screened in 3D. And, um, you know, it's coming out all over the place. So uh, there's the Western version and there's the, you know, the Eastern version. There's the Chinese, you know, obviously dubbed Mandarin and so on and so forth. But uh, if, as you've seen the film, you can see there's you know, people speaking Mandarin uh, and, and it's a mixture of East and West. But, but that was the primary audience we aimed at it and it was it's been very successful i've read in one article about the film that they think i think in 2020 it said they the chinese audience should officially take over um as far as like the the most views and everything um what are some of the themes or threads that, that you're thinking about like if someone wants to go and write a movie for that audience what are some of those um themes that may be different from american audiences yeah, well, probably not different, but, you know, actually similar, but it's interesting to identify them in that, um, um, you, like, this film, they specifically wanted to, the centre of it to be a, fa- a family story because Chinese are, you know, culturally in society is, is based around the family unit. Um, you know, even though we in the Western America, same in Australia, like we're sort of, you know, I guess more nuclear families constructed. There's an extended family, and family's very important. So that was one of the things. You know, so we we didn't have it in the beginning, but we added in the sister looking for a brother, and they were very keen to have, to have uh, an environmental aspect, which surprised me. Um, they said, "Oh, we want to um, we want to show what's happening in the world, how it's polluting, and how China is polluting, is polluting as well." And so we added that in. Like, I was surprised with the mines and all that. You know, in the in the film, we added that that in. So when the Chinese, when you you have to submit your film to the to the census, they only let in thirty five films a year uh, from outside, and so you have to submit your you know your screen, you, you put in the screenplay, and then they you know either take it or they don't. And um, some of the things you can't have, you can't have, you know, the Chinese government can't be seen to be losing the war and the military, and you can't put it, you know, can't be put it in a bad light, put it that way, the military or, you know, as a police, you know, you can't. But, you know, that's not unusual. I mean, if you look at Hollywood propaganda films during the Second World War or, you know, propaganda films we made here or anywhere else, in any other country, it's sort of, there are those sort of rules under it. So that's not unusual, but, you know, there's some of the rules that they, they, they don't really like ghost stories. Um, they don't want to, you know, they don't, like you wouldn't get, you don't get many ghosts for, in fact, they're right there because they're superstitious about that. So there are, there are some rules that you have to understand before you start on the screenplay. But they're the main ones, though. So when an audience sees this trailer, they'll likely, American audiences will likely recognize Kelsey Grammer and, and Kellen Lutz, and Chinese audiences will likely recognize uh, Li Bingbing. How does casting come into the idea of this kind of dual American-Chinese promotion? Actually, Bingbing had worked with Kelsey on Transformers, I think, on a couple of films. So they knew each other. And, um, and then so I would have never thought of 
you know, that's the thing I thought Kelsey Grammer, I'm a big fan of Kelsey Grammer, obviously from you know, all the comedies and cheers, etc. Yeah. So we all are and, uh, you know, somebody um uh suggested Kelsey, I think, Oh God, do you he wouldn't do you think he'd do a film like this? And, because, you know, it's a sort of general entertainment thing. It's not a, you know, it's certainly not a cerebral exercise. It's, you know, fun, fun popcorn film. And, um, you know, yeah, he really braced. He said, yeah, of course I want to do it. He said he really liked it. And um, so that, that was amazing. And he was like the rock of the film. He was so great. Everyone, you know, uh, in Shane Jacobson, who's an Australian actor in there, is one of our comedians. So he was, you know, Kelsey was his hero. And, uh, and it was just great. It was just amazing. He was so into it, and you know, talk, you know, talk about the script and come up with ideas. And he was, he was so cool. And then, and Callum Lutz, I'd met um, when we did, when we were doing Bait. He knew one of the, he was met with friends with one of the actors in Bait, and so I'd met him at that point. He was in Australia, and he was talking, he was travelling around, and sort of talking about the film a bit. He said, "Oh, that sounds cool. It's the type of thing I'd be really interested in." And so he said, "I'll be from an action. If I'm an action hero, though." Um, I want to have a flaw, so let, let, let's make it. Let's make it that I'm, you know, I'm nervous about spiders. I don't like spiders. Oh, okay. See how that works. The film sort of moved from horror more into general action adventure. Um, it was originally called Nest, and it was like you know, more pure horror, or more more horror than it became more action adventure. So it was sort of trying to blend the spiders in with the, you know. Yeah, cut the genres together. I think I think we got away with it. Or you have to tell me. So I've got just uh, one more question. So I, th- I think IMDb lists you as the director for a new movie coming out that might involve something about a punk rocker and some homicidal robots. It sounds like it might connect all of your experiences together. Can you share any details about this um, new film? Well, yeah, no, it's Popbot. Now, Popbot is a, it's a really great project, but it's a, we've been pushing it along for um, for years, but it's just stuck in the script stage. Like we can't, it's just hard. It's just been really hard to get with the, the creators and the people behind it just to get it to the next stage. So it's a really great. I'd really love to do it. And as you say, it's a perfect melting of the two worlds, and that's a great. You know, producers on it, but it's, a, it's just stuck in the. We can't get it. We can't get it in the out of the. You know, we've done it. There's been a few drafts on it. We're just getting it to the next draft. It's just really stuck. So I've got this other one, which is a sci-fi film called The Rum R U U M, and it's based on a short story by Arthur Porges, an American short story writer. So that looks like it might might happen. And that's you know sci-fi. Um, thing and um, and then I'm working on this like a more of a monster movie um, as well but there's one I'm really passionate about which has had nothing nothing to do with any of this it's to do with opera so it's probably links back to the Norman Jewison Norman Jewison story it's like you know you've got to have a bunch of them on the boil at once and so as I say I've got eclectic tastes Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block, 
This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Kerry Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.